This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I think this has been the fourth or fifth time I've spoken um, at this conference, and it's been exciting because, um, you know, early in my career, not there wasn't a whole lot of change uh, that I could talk about, but um, it's really been an exciting time for us in the pediatric and adult epilepsy space, because I think we have a lot more ability to, to make precise diagnoses. And what I'm gonna to talk to you today about, you know, how is this era of genetic testing uh, impacting our epilepsy management? And I'm hopefully gonna highlight that it does matter and it's no longer just an academic endeavor. Great. So here are my uh, disclosures. Uh, some of them are relevant um, uh, because uh, as Jerry said, I, I am a principal investigator on some of the studies of some of the data um, that I'm going to uh, present to you. And I consult um, with a couple of companies that help design clinical trials that will hopefully bring some of these therapies uh, into the clinic. Um, so here are my learning objectives. First, uh, I, I want to go over and describe the important historical and clinical factors necessary to make an accurate epilepsy diagnosis. I hope that uh, if you come out of this, uh, we, we can try to refrain from using the term seizure disorder, right? Um, we we wanna actually be a little bit more specific than that because I think it really, it goes a long way in allowing uh, providers to communicate. And I think it's really helpful for patients and families so that they can maybe establish an identity with, with, other, with other patients and families that have similar diagnosis. Um, second, I hope you'll be able to identify patients that will have a high yield for genetic testing. And I know that this conference is, is you know, tended by, by both adult and pediatric providers. And I, I'm really looking this at, uh, at this as an opportunity to, to, to convince uh, many of our adult providers that making a genetic diagnosis, even if you're taking care of a, a 40 or 50 year old uh, with intellectual disability, you don't know why, could really have uh, potential treatment implications. And then lastly, I'll review a little bit of the uh, what we call syndrome-specific treatments um, that have this sort of uh, precision medicine implication that I'll get into uh, here a little bit further. So an outline, first we'll talk about the making the epilepsy diagnosis, then get into the role of genetic testing. Again, talk about the precision medicine implications, and then I'll end with two slides and just some exciting novel therapies um, that are, are currently in the pipeline. So this actually hasn't really changed that much uh, since my training. So epilepsy, you know, is still a clinical diagnosis. And again, not to beat it to, to uh, too much here, but history, history, history. Often, you know, by taking a history uh, over the phone uh, that maybe is supplemented by the uh, ever so common uh, uh, iPhone uh, videos, uh, we can uh, very often make that, that epilepsy diagnosis. Um, one thing that should be noted is seizures are stereotyped, right? Seizure is coming from a specific area of the brain and depending on where that area of the brain, uh, what area of the brain that is, that should determine what, what we as observers see or what the patient themselves um, experience. And so there's kind of this, this sort of unspoken rule that the more different types of spells that someone has, the less likely any of them are to be a seizure. One day the right arm twitches and one day the left arm twitches. Another time they see flashing lights and another time feel fear. Yes, those all by themselves can actually be uh, seizure types, but it's very unusual to, for all of those seizure types to coexist in, the, in, this, in, in a single um, patient. And at least on the pediatric side, and I guess this gets into, you know, sort of young adults who, who, who may um, 
also have a, a caregiver um, in the sense that they can't describe what they feel. Uh, we really want to try to 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 hone in on on what the the caregiver first sees because if many of these seizures end up in a convulsive seizure, right? So a generalized tonic clonic seizure, that's of course a very um, uh, difficult thing to watch and, and it's traumatic. And we often can then sort of forget that that's actually not how the, the seizure actually started. And so sometimes you do have to ask specific questions, you know, did the child stare? Did they, did they, were they doing something? And then I had a bland behavioral arrest. Then did they actually have some stiffening followed by jerking? If there was jerking of an extremity, was it both extremities? Um, was there a slight asymmetry? Was there stiffening of one extremity and jerking of the other? All of these things, again, we, we don't even necessarily have to have seen the patient yet, but are getting this uh, um, by, by history. And we can start to hone in on one, is this a seizure and is this epilepsy? And if so, what type of epilepsy is it? We then get into different features of, of duration. Are they seconds or minutes long? Maybe some provoking factors such as fever, illness, flashing lights. And then getting into some of the epilepsy risk factors. So we certainly want to know, it, was this, this patient um, abnormal um, uh, developmentally, neurologically before the first seizure occurred? Or is this coming out of the blue in, in, in someone who had no other neurodevelopmental risk factors at all? So we're kind of still you know, building um, our suspicion for epilepsy and trying to hone in on what that type uh, may actually be. And so then the next real big branching point is okay, yes, we do believe these are seizures. We do believe this is epilepsy. Is it focal, meaning coming from one area of the brain, or generalized, meaning both sides of the brain simultaneously? And just statistically, um, over the last couple of decades, this has been looked at in a number of, uh, of studies. Uh, and the majority of, of newly diagnosed children now, again, I'm speaking with my pediatric hat, uh, almost two-thirds will have focal epilepsy. Um, almost 20% will have a specific epilepsy syndrome. And I'm going to get into a little bit more uh, details um, uh, in some subsequent slides here. Um, and still 10%, despite everything that we have available to us in 2020, um, still may not be able to be classified. And that may be uh, the role of, of doing some ancillary testing, such as video EEG monitoring, MRI, or some other advanced neuroimaging. And then one of the frustrations, but also joys of being a pediatric provider is that we are following a moving target, right? Kids change and develop and their brains change and develop over time. And so uh, a two-year-old may have a certain seizure type or epilepsy syndrome that when they turn eight, nine, or 10 uh, may change and evolve. And if we um, are aware of how these syndromes can evolve, we can, we can anticipate that and not have it be a surprise for us uh, or for the family. So epilepsy syndromes, why, why bother? Is this just something that Joe likes to talk about because, um, because he's a pediatric epileptologist and this is kind of the, uh, the creed we live by? No, I, I think that it really does uh, carry a lot of, of practical value um, when we're taking care of these patients. So very simply defined, an epilepsy syndrome is a complex of signs and symptoms that define a unique epilepsy condition with different etiologies. Um, and so what are those, those, those complex signs and symptoms? Well, it really boils down to age of onset, the different seizure types, uh, and then what we call the interictal condition EEG pattern. So are these kids abnormal in between seizures? Are they normal? Do they have autism? Um, do they have speech delay? Do they actually have a hemiparesis? What, what do their, what do their uh, EEG findings show? Do they, do they have central temporal spikes, which is a, you know, a, 
a very common uh, finding in, in children with benign Rolandic epilepsy, or or do they have generalized spikes that may put us in a completely different category? So, so these are all things that converge and allow us to maybe make this, this um, uh, more specific epilepsy syndrome diagnosis. And again, once we have that, we no longer can say um, to Mr. and Ms. Jones, your, your son or daughter you know, has a seizure disorder. We can actually say they have Dravet syndrome because they have this clinical presentation and, and are found to have a mutation in the SCM1A gene. And that actually, you know, not only does it have prognosis and counseling implications, but it really does help guide uh, our, our treatment strategies. And so here's a figure um, from the recent uh, International League Against Epilepsy sort of classification schema. And hopefully I've kind of walked you through a few of these boxes. So first, you know, at top here in the blue, um, we can see that we have focal, generalized, or unknown. Uh, those are the seizure types. Then we want to see if those actually correlate well with the, the epilepsy type, because you can actually have some, some epilepsies where they have both focal um, and generalized seizures. And then we actually try to hone that down into an epilepsy syndrome. And then looping that back, they all these are all not etiology specific, right? So then we want to try to categorize of these either seizure epilepsy or epilepsy syndromes. Do they have a structural, genetic, infectious, et cetera? And what I really want to focus on today is obviously the role, the role of genetics. And I, and I know looking at the uh, agenda of the conference, uh, you've heard a lot uh, about, about comorbidities, which is, which is certainly a, a specific interest of mine, because even in an intractable epilepsy patient who may be having 50 seizures a week, um, still 95% of their time is spent not having seizures, but it's the, uh, uh, well, sorry, 5% of their time is spent having seizures, but it's the other 95% of the time that they're not having seizures where they're living, their parents are living, their teachers, their siblings are having to li live and deal with these comorbidities, which are, are so critically important to, to their overall quality of life. And so the role of genetics in, 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 the, uh, in, in, in caring for patients with epilepsy, this was a study that I participated in um, five or six years ago where we basically started uh, just enrolling patients that came in uh, under the age of three with a new diagnosis of epilepsy. And we just basically collected uh, the, the different um, um, uh, assessments that they, that they underwent, including MRI imaging, metabolic testing, genetic testing, and tried to see what were the representative yields of some of these tests. Was this just something that because we could do it, it was fancy and new and we, we did it um, and it really wasn't impacting? So what was the yield? So you can see that this was a young cohort of patients. So these are these are kids that are coming in with a, a mean, median age of onset of around seven months. And the overwhelming majority underwent uh, MR imaging, um, which really is sort of uh, the recommended sort of guidelines for, for a new onset uh, uh, epilepsy. Um, we can see a dwindling number, about half, uh, underwent metabolic testing. And this metabolic testing could be an ammonia level, it could be a lactate, it could be a pyruvate, or it could be the whole metabolic shotgun that I trained with uh, 20 years ago, um, where we're looking for a lot of these um, zebras. But you can see that this is becoming um, uh, less common. Uh, and still, uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of these patients were, were unexplained, um, uh, which leads to the next tier um, that, that is genetic testing. And so about half of this cohort underwent some type of genetic testing, 
And here is that broken down. So we can see karyotype still has uh, value, uh, right? So we certainly have an, uh, uh, an infant that develops seizures and has some, some dysmorphic findings that are consistent with a trisomy or, or, or whatnot. A karyotype still is incredibly important in making that diagnosis, as is chromosomal microarray. But as we can see, there, there's an increasing uh, use of, of epilepsy panels um, and even whole exome sequencing. And you can see that across all of these different interventions, the pathogenic findings um, uh, really were in about 25 to 30% uh, percent, uh, of patients. And then a, a still a, a large percent of patients that had these variants uh, of uncertain uh, significance, which I know plagues us uh, for those of us who who do a lot of genetic testing in our clinical practice, but, but many times these, these variants of uncertain significance over time uh, don't become so uncertain and don't necessarily become variants, but maybe move into the category uh, of pathogenic findings as soon as we understand uh, more of the specifics of those, of those findings. And so this actually breaks that, that cohort down even further to look at the chromosomal microarray to the left, the epilepsy panel at the right and the middle, and the exome sequencing on the right, and trying to actually look at what happens if you actually add in uh, uh, developmental status. So kids who have normal or equivocal development here in the orange, and those that have delayed development. And you can see that with an epilepsy panel, um, the yield is still um, hovering there around a third of patients, regardless uh, of whether or not there's developmental delay, because these are looking for you know genes where epilepsy is a salient feature. So obviously they're seeing me or they're seeing an epileptologist because they have seizures. Um, and so an epilepsy panel, you can imagine, would have a higher yield. When you cast a wider net, it's not always better, right? You can see here that if you have a normal, uh, uh, a child with normal development um, in epilepsy, you really don't get a whole lot of additional yield out of whole exome sequencing. But if you do have other developmental delays, or certainly if you have other uh, systems involved uh, that are abnormal, your, your, your yield on the whole exome sequencing um, uh, is higher. But basically looking at this, taking all together, genetic testing, uh, and again, this is a cohort uh, of children with early onset epilepsy less than age three, provided an etiology of 25%. And that is just, in my opinion, um, well worth uh, the, the money spent. And thankfully, the, the cost of this testing is coming down um, um, literally every, every six to 12 months. Um, okay, so, so we have a, an etiology. And yes, I think that that's important, but I think it can go further than that. So, so this is another uh, uh, study that I was involved uh, with and is relevant to my uh, disclosure because this was a study that was came out of the Invitae lab, uh, which is a commercial genetic testing lab, where they basically just reported on, on the first almost 10,000 um, uh, genetic tests that they did um, for uh, uh, childhood epilepsy. As you can see, there is this trend uh, for testing to be done more in the, in the younger children, which I think does make sense. If you have a genetic etiology, it's more likely than not that those children are gonna become symptomatic um, earlier in their, in their life. And you can see that this, this number of around 15 to 25% remains pretty constant in, in this study uh, uh, as well. But what we could demonstrate here is what were, what were the implications of making that etiologic diagnosis. And of these that had a specific diagnosis, a third um, actually had direct treatment implications. And I'm gonna go through those quickly uh, here on these next few slides. Um, so this is a little bit of a busy, 
a busy slide, but up in the top left, um, we see that the percentage of, of individuals with syndromic. So these are basically syndromic panels. Um, we just heard about Prader Willi. Um, so if someone is suspecting Rett syndrome, for example, or Angelman syndrome based on the clinical phenotype, then you're going to order that specific syndromic panel, right? And so you can see that that the that the uh, yield on those types, which which actually have a positive molecular diagnosis, that's what this uh, stands for, is going to be higher because you're you're going into it with a high pretest probability. Then you have this panel that um, in its infancy, when these panels were rolling out in the epilepsy space, they were called the early infantile epileptic encephalopathy panel. So these were like 10 to 15 genes that were really looking at some of these more severe, better characterized um, uh, epilepsy genes. And, and again, we can see that not only is the hit rate high, but if we start looking in the sort of dark blue here, these are the, are the diagnoses that have specific uh, PMI, so precision medicine implications. And then as these panels and as, as, as next generation sequencing has become um, uh, more efficient and more cost-effective, the number of genes just keeps expanding, expanding. And, and, and at the time of this publication, this comprehensive epilepsy gene panel included 181 genes. And so you can see that if you're casting a, a wider net um, and maybe doing it, not only casting a wider net, but, but doing it in a, in, a, in a wider, more heterogeneous group of patients, your yield's going to come down a little, but I would, I would still like to argue that the, the um, uh, a hit rate here is clinically meaningful, um, hovering around 15%, with uh, still about a third of those having direct um, precision medicine implications. Much in the same way that I summarized the data before with the, the earlier study, if you also look at the overall yield when you add in uh, some of the intellectual um, uh, comorbidities, autism, developmental delay, or intellectual disability. And again, these are broadly defined by the provider who's checking the boxes off on the panel. You can see that with comorbidities, um, the, the overall yield uh, increases. And I'm not going to go through this panel down here in detail, but just to show there's a whole host of genes um, that are coming up that are contributing um, to the data above uh, with about 50% of the overall uh, uh, findings coming from, from sort of a, a, a handful of genes with, with SCN1A and Rett syndrome being, uh, being uh, uh, the, top, uh, the top two. And so this goes into the, those that had, um, what were the precision medicine implications? I'm not saying that we're at a point yet where we have a cure um, for these disorders. So that's what I'm going to end the presentation with, hoping that we can sort of shine some optimism moving forward. Um, but basically, um, you know, as we understand the genetics of some of these epilepsies better, we can then go to the literature, we can go to our, our at least best understood mechanisms of actions for these drugs to understand if there are specific anti-epileptic drug indications. This is the new term now is anti-seizure medications. So if you start hearing that ASM, because we believe that our, our medications are not necessarily affecting the underlying epileptic process, but are simply seizure medications. So you'll hear that more and more ASMs. And then equally important, um, there are certain genetic conditions where there are some anti-seizure medications that are actually contraindicated. And I'm going to show you um, why that's also um, uh, important. Um, I'm going to skip over this uh, C just for the interest of time. So what about adults? Uh, I, I wish I could be standing in our usual conference hall and get a show of hands of how many are, are pre predominantly um, uh, pediatric providers versus adult providers. Um, 
This is still important in adults. Here are, here are two studies that are, they're smaller studies, um, which I think is just representative of, of just maybe more, there, there needs to be more momentum uh, to, to, to justify genetic testing in our adult population. But on the left here, this was just a, a, a small a study of 64 patients that looked at panel testing in adults with epilepsy and intellectual disability. And again, we're hovering around this, you know, 20%. So there was a, a diagnosis that were made in 22% uh, of these uh, patients. And of those, um, if we look again, these comorbidities are, are highly prevalent. And of those 14, um, just over half actually had a change from their earlier presumptive diagnosis, right? So maybe someone was, was diagnosed with a certain type of epilepsy, um, and then that completely changed once we actually had, had this gene panel. And then a, a slightly larger uh, study encompassing a very large age range here, of 18 all the way up to age 80, uh, again, with comorbid intellectual disability, um, and this was done over many years. And so you can see the gene panels that were used and how genes were added to it increased over time. Again, 25% uh, uh, had a diagnosis um, with about half of them leading to a change in treatment. And of course, it, it's only helpful if the change in treatment actually improves the patient uh, outcome. And in this study, they showed the overall majority of those patients uh, not only had a change in their treatment, but that treatment change translated into uh, clinically meaningful uh, improvement. So again, small studies, um, uh, highly selected cohorts, but, but hopefully this is enough uh, for us to pique our interest in saying, if I have a patient that I'm caring for um, that has epilepsy and, and an intellectual disability, and I don't know why, um, uh, this is an indication in my opinion for, for uh, sending one of these um, uh, epilepsy gene panels. So maybe as I was saying that you were saying, thinking to yourself, yeah, great, Joe, it sounds all well and good, but these things aren't covered. Well, things are rapidly, uh, rapidly uh, uh, changing. Um, uh, and this, I think, is highlighting um, some of the benefits of, of, of industry partnering with diagnostic uh, labs, because it's in the industry's best interest, right, to, to increase the number of patients that are being diagnosed with some of these specific syndromes, because if they have a precision medicine compound that actually works for those syndromes, um, they want these patients to be, to, to be diagnosed. So hopefully it's a, it's, a, it's a mutually symbiotic relationship here. So this behind the seizure program that, that Invite has, basically any child under the age of eight, eight years um, who has an unprovoked seizure can get an epilepsy gene panel at no cost. Um, they either bill the insurance or if the insurance doesn't cover it, the company basically uh, eats the cost. Um, with, the, with the presumption that they will get enough um, uh, insurance reimbursement to make this over, um, overall um, profitable uh, for them. The, this gene panel now includes 304 genes. I mentioned that the study that I was part of was 181 genes. Now it's up to, to 304 genes. And for, for those that are in, in uh, California, um, our, our state Medi-Cal insured um, patients um, can also get an epilepsy gene panel at no charge, regardless uh, of this sort of age requirement. So I think this is something that may not be widely uh, known, uh, may seem too good to be true, but it is true. Um, and and I, so I urge, urge you again, that if you have patients where you have epilepsy, intellectual disability, still don't know why um, this, this diagnostic modality, potentially diagnostic modality is available to you and to those patients. 
So now I want to just pivot a little bit and get into, okay, we, we make the epilepsy diagnosis. Maybe we're, we're savvy enough to, to make the syndrome diagnosis, send the gene panel and have that genetic confirmation. But really, you know, what are some of the specific precision medicine implications um, for some of these sort of niche or orphan, uh, uh, orphan diagnoses and, and, and how effective uh, uh, are they? Um, so a, a topic that I've, I've spoken uh, about before um, at this conference and one that's near and dear to my heart, sort of, uh, I, I no longer consider myself an epileptologist. I almost consider myself a dravetologist because um, this is a, a, a patient population that I, that I uh, care for. Um, so this um, it has also gotten a lot of press uh, over the last five or six years because it's really how the medical marijuana and, uh, and, and epilepsy um, came onto the mainstream um, uh, um, uh, social media. Um, but essentially these, these children um, uh, are present in that first year of life, usually around six months of age. They often have a prolonged 10 minute long seizures, often in the setting of fever. And then over the next weeks to months, other seizure types occur. So kind of, you know, as I'm going down that schematic of, well, they have focal seizures, they have generalized seizures, they have this age of onset. We're funneling them into that epilepsy syndrome, that is Gervais syndrome. And this has a very a high um, uh, incidence of, of, of pharmaco uh, uh, resistance. And so getting back into that, that chart that I showed you that not only are there precision medicine implications for what drugs to try, but there are also implications of which drugs to avoid. And because we know now the genetic backdrop of Dravet syndrome being a loss of function, a, a mutation that leads to a loss of function in the SCN1A gene, such that these patients basically end up having half as much sodium channel expressed, and that'll become important um, uh, later. Um, we know that sodium channel blockers, which are very commonly used medications in, in the sort of adult and pediatric epilepsy space, are actually contraindicated. And not only are they contraindicated because they can make seizures worse, but in this study, it showed very well um, in a group of, I think this is about 85 patients, and each one of these colored lines represents an individual uh, patient um, who was exposed uh, to sodium channel blockers and for how long. And so this is just the scatter plot of all the patients over the, and on the x-axis, we see their age. On the y-axis, we see their IQ or developmental quotients. And over here in panel B, we can see these trends line, trend lines. So those patients that were actually exposed to a contraindicated medication for less than 11 months compared to those that were exposed greater than 12 months, or greater than 11 months, sorry, you can see the differences in their, in their DQs and IQs. And hopefully we would all agree that, that this is, is heartbreaking and catastrophic, right? That if we could have avoided those medications, we could have saved, I always hate to use that term, but we could have saved IQ points uh, and not just a few, right? We're looking at a delta here of around 20 IQ points, which we know is highly, highly, uh, clinically um, uh, meaningful in terms of what what these what these individuals um, uh, can do. So uh, again, this is uh, uh, the way to avoid uh, uh, starting medications that could uh, result in an adverse outcome. But then let's turn it over to sort of the more positive things. Uh, these kids are still having these kids are still having these kids and young adults are still having uh, seizures. And, and this was a survey that was done in, in Europe. Uh, of over 600 patients with Dravet syndrome and looking at their incidence of different seizure types across the age spectrum. And so all is over here on the left. And so you can see the overwhelming majority. Um, so 85% uh, are, are still having seizures. 
Um, and this is actually in the preceding three months. So you can see less than 10% of patients have this period of, of seizure freedom of three months or more. And then you can see, you know, again, the moving target that is, that is a childhood epilepsy syndrome. Um, these, these seizure types change and evolve over time such that when you get into adult and adolescence, um, these patients may be having more atonic uh, drop attacks uh, or, or tonic-clonic seizures and therefore may be given, you know, perhaps a, a, a diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome um, because you don't necessarily know the early childhood history as to how they presented. So if you have a patient with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome of unknown cause, um, again, uh, a, a pivotal role for maybe gene testing in that patient because maybe they are a Dravet patient who has actually undergone some clinical uh, evolution. And this is where the treatments actually, not only from a, a, a clinical perspective, but from a practical perspective, because it's difficult to get some of these specific anti-seizure medications if you don't have the specific on-label uh, syndromic and epilepsy diagnosis. And so here are the two sort of pivotal trials that led to the approval of, of pharmaceutical grade cannabidiol. Uh, the brand name is, is Epidiolex. Uh, so on the left here was the first study that basically looked at two uh, uh, treatment groups. It was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of Epidiolex at 20 milligrams per kilogram per day versus placebo. And after 12 weeks, their median reduction in seizures in the treatment group was 39% compared to 13% in the placebo group. And then in a second, almost identical trial, again, in patients with Dravet syndrome, but with two different dosage arms. So there was a third got placebo, a third got 10 per kilo, a third got 20 per kilo. You can see the placebo responder rate, and this may alarm many um, who are not used to reading epilepsy uh, drug trials, but this, this placebo effect of somewhere between 10 and 20% has been fairly constant across many drug trials uh, over the last couple of decades. And so if we look at the delta here, the delta between treatment response and placebo response, we're still in that you know, sort of 20 to 25% improvement uh, over placebo. Um, so so, uh, you know, the first drug approved in the uh, FDA approved in the U.S. Um, for Dravet syndrome. And I can tell you that in my own personal practice, this has been a very uh, effective agent um, for many of these patients. It's not getting them seizure free. They're still having seizures, um, but you're starting out at a baseline seizure frequency every month of, you know, upwards of 15 seizures. And so if you can cut that down by a third, you know, that is, that is, that is clinically meaningful. Um, a second drug that was just recently approved um, last summer um, that I had the uh, uh, privilege of being one of the uh, lead investigators on, uh, fenfluramine. Some of you may remember fenfluramine as one of the drugs that was in the fenfen diet back in the 80s and 90s, and it was withdrawn from the market because of the concern that it was developing uh, cardiac valvulopathy uh, and maybe pulmonary hypertension. So because there were other anti-obesity treatments that were emerging at the time, the risk-benefit um, was felt to, to, to be too risky and it was voluntarily withdrawn um, from the market. Uh, and I have a whole one-hour talk that goes into the history in terms of why this was even considered as a potential can a drug candidate um, for patients with Dravet syndrome. It's a fascinating story, but I obviously don't have time to go into it. Um, but um, essentially two uh, randomized controlled trials were, were completed uh, a few years ago. And this is showing the data in a slightly different way. So this is a, a responder curves where we can see uh, on the x-axis, we have the percent reduction in seizures. And on the y-axis, we have the number 
of patients. And what I'll just call your attention to is the middle and far right line. Whoops, sorry. The middle and far right lines here. So this is the percentage of patients at two different doses of fenfluramine, 0.7 per kilo per day, 0.2, and then the red here is placebo. Um, so almost 70% of patients actually had a 50% reduction in seizures or more. And then this is what I really want to call your attention to. This is something we just don't see in anti-seizure medication drug trials, especially in a highly pharmacoresistant group that is Gervais syndrome, where 50% of the patients that were receiving the higher dose actually had a 75% reduction in seizures um, or more. Um, and we can see that this is also recapitulated over here uh, in, a, in, a, in a second study um, that, that had a slightly different design because there was only um, uh, a single dose uh, tried uh, against uh, placebo. So again, syndrome specific, the only way you can get fenfluramine um, today in 2021 is if you have a diagnosis of Dravet syndrome. And so again, if you don't know uh, whether or not some of your, your uh, adults that have refractory seizures of unknown cause and associated intellectual disability, I guarantee you some of them have Dravet syndrome. And so, um, you know, making that diagnosis would, would make these medications uh, potentially uh, available to them. So let's get into maybe one slide on uh, not just seizures, right? As an epileptologist, yes, I care about seizures, but I, I really care about how these kids are able to live and thrive and try to maximize their quality of life and neurodevelopmental potential. And there's always been a long, you know, longly felt belief that if we could just control seizures in a way um, that was um, uh, not sedating, that perhaps we could start to improve executive function and cognition. And so as part of that fenfluramine study, there was a, 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 a assessment called the BRIEF, which is a, a um, I'm going to forget the abbreviation. It's a, it's a, it's an index of executive function. Um, it's essentially a survey that the family, that the caregiver fills out. Um, and this was done in a blinded fashion. So the parents were filling this out at baseline and then they filled, filled it out um, uh, one year later. Um, and this was actually put in there to make sure that, to make sure that fenfluramine was not having a negative impact on cognition. So it was actually put in there as a safety measure. Uh, lo and behold, though, after we looked at the data, uh, after these kids were on uh, the drug for a year, we were very surprised to see that not only was there not a worsening in some of these uh, scores uh, on the brief, but in fact, those that actually had significant reduction in their seizures, there were clinically meaningful improvements in many of them in some of these subscores of, of, of executive function. And some of these abbreviations here, you can see the behavior regulation index, emotional regulation index, cognitive, and then the global executive composite. Uh, and we'll just, you know, statistical significance is statistical significance, um, obviously based on ends and, and, the, and the, the, the degree of the treatment effect. But you can see in those, those patients that had the 75% reduction in seizures compared to those that had less than a 25% reduction in seizures, we saw a more than 10 point change on some of these subscores, which the, we've consulted with the actual um, inventors of the test uh, a 10-point change is something that in clinical practice is considered uh, clinic clinically meaningful. So again, not only are we having a syndrome-specific diagnosis with syndrome-specific therapies that may lead to reduction in seizures, but perhaps we can start to see some improvements in some of these, these other uh, non-seizure-related comorbidities. And, and I'll remind you that 
Um, I didn't go into the demographics of these studies, but the, the median age of the patients included in the study was nine years, right? So we like to think in the in, in, in my field that there's been a lot of development that's already happened by age nine. And unfortunately, if these kids have had hundreds of thousands of seizures, you know, maybe there's this pessimism that is it too late really to, to really have a, a, the ability to make a change. I hope this shows that it's never too late. Um, and if we can, if we can improve some of, of these functions, even in our, in our, in our adult population, I, I, I encourage us uh, to, to, to really try because, because you never know um, when you are going to be able um, to make that small difference that translates into, into um, uh, significant changes for those individual patients. So I'm just going to wrap up here in the last uh, few minutes about gene therapy. I, 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 you know, so obviously to make a genetic diagnosis, then the, the, the next, uh, you know, uh, rational um, uh, question would be, okay, now if you do know the cause, what about gene therapy? And I can remember families asking me, you know, well, we've known about SCN1A, what about gene therapy? And until a few years ago, I, I will go on the record to say that I would say, you know, I really don't think I'm going to see this in my career. Just to think about how we're able to get a gene into the human brain, into the neurons, in this complex structure that is, is the human brain and an epilepsy network in a way that leads to improvements or cure. I just, I, sorry if I'm a pessimist, but I just, I didn't see it happening. Well, slap me because uh, it is happening. Um, and these are things that certainly uh, I don't think were known uh, when I was in, in, in medical school, but this is one uh, approach um, that we actually are enrolling in a clinical trial right now. Uh, and the, the technology is called TANGO, um, which stands for the Targeted Augmentation of Nuclear Gene Output. And if you'll bear with me, I wanna walk you through this cartoon because I think it's, it's super slick. Um, so basically, um, we all have uh, pairs of chromosomes. Uh, what this cartoon is trying to show here that in a, in, at least in the uh, Dravet um, uh, condition, um, you basically have a normal um, wild type um, um, gene, and then you have the mutated uh, gene. And as I mentioned earlier, at least in Dravet syndrome and other um, what we call haploinsufficient um, disorders, um, these patients um, lose function uh, of one of the genes so that effectively what happens is that you get the uh, mutant um, NR, uh, messenger RNA, which basically is unable to be made into functional protein but you still have your wild type um, here in the orange that's able to be transcribed. The messenger RNA transcript gets translated into protein. And this is showing here that we have 50% of what is supposed to be in the non-mutated state. What this, um, this, this technology does is it uses an anti-sense oligonucleotide. Uh, and the way I explain this to families is essentially, it seems that the cell has this redundant mechanism of making this non-productive RNA. And basically there's this kind of do not disturb sign on me. Like I'm here, but you know, you don't need me. Don't make me, uh, uh, ignore me. Don't make me into protein. And what this ASO does is it actually binds um, to uh, this non-productive uh, uh, um, messenger RNA and says, hey, I'm here, use me. And effectively what it does, if given at the right dose, is it's able to restore the messenger RNA transcript that is translated into protein that restores the, the concentration of protein to that that is wild type. So this is just like, to me, like every time I 
show this slide, I get super excited because it's it, it just seems like, first of all, why does the cell, why do our cells make this sort of redundant uh, uh, um, non-productive RNA? Who knows, right? Is, is, it, is it the appendix of the cell? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but uh, I love the fact that some very smart people figured out a way to, to take advantage of this. And I think where this is really going to maybe have profound treatment implications is that you know, not only does this have the ability to really restore the neuronal balance and, and translate into improved seizures, but if we can make this diagnosis earlier and earlier because of the availability of gene testing, because of the availability for us to recognize the phenotype, you know, could we actually change the entire neurodevelopmental trajectory for these patients if we give a disease modify, a potentially disease modifying therapy? Uh, like this. You can see I'm getting excited. I, I hope it pans out. It's We're, we're literally, uh, we've enrolled, um, um, I think, 16 patients uh, nationwide um, with this. And at this point, it's just a dose-finding study, but I'm, I'm optimistic um, uh, about, uh, about this, this, this approach. My last slide uh, here is, a, is another uh, uh, technology, which it could essentially be uh, a one and done. I, I, I forgot to mention that um, ASO therapy is one that would need to be given via spinal tap and would need to be given maybe every three to six months um, because it does undergo just normal pharmacokinetic um, um, uh, elimination uh, by, by the body. Whereas this is a, is a, is a therapy that, that uses an adenovirus associated uh, vector um, where the, it's not CRISPR, right? So this is not like inserting and correcting the gene, but along the same way as we are leveraging that one wild type non-mutated gene, um, this is able to bind uh, uh, to the allele and upregulate the transcript of the working uh, allele. So it kind of does it directly at the DNA binding site, as opposed to um, uh, allowing that messenger RNA um, to be expressed, but the same result, uh, end result is there in the sense that you get more messenger RNA transcript and then hence um, more um, production of that of that sodium channel. And and this the this is a little bit um, uh, more involved in the sense that the only way to get this vector into the central nervous system is to do an interventricular uh, uh, dosing uh, uh, route. Um, this has been done in some other neurodegenerative diseases and, and is considered to be uh, safe. It, it obviously is very invasive, but this would be a one and done uh, type treatment because this would bind to the DNA and continue to tell it to upregulate uh, to the point where we want to uh, approach the, the wild type state. And we're, I'm excited to say that human trials are planned to start with this uh, uh, intervention uh, probably um, uh, later next year. So that's a little bit of a whirlwind uh, tour. Hopefully I've taken you through, um, you know, first just very basic, like take a good clinical history, ask uh, uh, families, caregivers uh, to tell you what they first see and really go through that clinical reasoning, usually with the help of genetic testing to try and arrive at a much more specific epilepsy diagnosis uh, and avoid using the term seizure disorder. Um, again, this is no longer just an academic endeavor where it'd just be nice to know. Uh, I really think that that we're only going to see more precision medicine uh, treatments um, that will not only affect seizures, but hopefully some of these non-seizure related uh, comorbidities. And I think it also has the way to backfeed about itself. If, if all of a sudden uh, laboratories are seeing that there's emerging patients 
um, with specific genetic disorders, that allows them to maybe come up with some of these sort of designer uh, uh, drugs um, that can approach these, these specific genetic conditions that could ultimately go beyond just symptom management and maybe even lead to a cure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.